Welcome to the Anifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. I am baby Yoda, though. Remember that. But today's <laughs> one, I'm catching up with someone I haven't seen for a long time. We very nearly worked together mm-hmm. when David moved to Canada, and for various reasons it didn't happen, so it's just going to be a good catch-up, if nothing else, for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Today's guest graduated from the University of Dundee with a Bachelor of Engineering and then over his career became a partner with uh, Max Ford of the United Kingdom and then later a principal with Stantec in Canada. He has to date oh, accumulated over 25 years of experience in the design and project management of building engineering services on a variety of projects around the world and including some heritage buildings. We might get a chance to talk about that. Welcome to the show, David Clark. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me, Adam and Robert. It's great to be here. Yeah. David, one of the things we love about your background and story, you're a chartered engineer in the UK. You're an international professional engineer through the Engineering Council, and you hold two licenses in Canada, one in Manitoba and one in Ontario. Your portfolio projects include everything from theaters to hospitals to campuses. And one of the things that we love the most about you is that you have a mission to mentor to the next generation of engineers, and that's very dear to us. Mm-hmm. So what was that motive force in your early days that sent you on the trajectory that you're on today about learning and practicing and mentoring? So I think, I mean, I got into engineering originally. My mom used to say to me that she thought I was going to be an engineer because she said when we walked along the street and there was workers excavating, she, that I would always drag her over to go and look in the hall and see what they were doing down <laughs> in the hall. I think fairly early on at school, I realized I wanted to do engineering and I wasn't really sure kind of what kind. So I wound up, and I guess this ties into some of the mentoring discussion as well. I I met up with one of the lecturers at the University of Dundee where I I ended up studying. It was a careers fair about engineering and met this guy, Alan Davidson. I'm not sure if he's still even working these days. I think he may have retired, but he was a lecturer at the time in the civil engineering course. And I got talking to him and realized actually that this is what I want to do. And I I found out later that my uncle was a civil engineer when he worked in London as well. And I always find when I talk to other engineers, there's usually somebody somewhere in the family or a family friend, you know, there's a connection somewhere that's led them down the path into engineering. So I ended up doing the civil engineering course there and they offered a a building engineering module as part of that. And I realized kind of early on in the course, actually, I'm really interested in buildings. So took all the buildings courses that I could take and are in building building technology, building science type stuff to try and learn as much as I could about it. And I did a final year project with an architecture student. We, We were lucky enough to actually get an architect. There was an architecture module in the course as well. So I actually got taught for a year by an architecture lecture as well about the history and theory of architecture. But in my final year, I did a collaborative design project with an architecture student from the art college up the street. And I had a great time. It was the best thing I had done. And when I realized I could do that as a job and actually go and work with architects and design buildings with them, it was like, you know, this is okay. This is what I want to do. But at the time in Scotland, this was 94. The UK was in a bit of a recession, a big recession, really. 
And there wasn't a lot of work in Scotland. I was applying all over and not having much success and uh, ended up applying to Max Fordham's. I had two interviews that day. The other interview, I thought I absolutely nailed it. The one with Max Fordham's was, it was pretty grueling. It was pretty tough. And I came out of it, well, there's no way I've got that job. And ended up getting the job. Spent 15 years working there as a partner for part of that time. And Max was a, Max passed on, I think, last year. But a real pioneer of building building services engineering, as we knew it in the UK, and really was responsible for turning it into a discipline in its own right, really, in the UK. But they trained everybody to do both mechanical and electrical engineering so that you could deal with both bits of the building services. So in my career, I've done, done electrical design and lighting design and electrical systems for theatres and things like that, as well as kind of conventional mechanical stuff as well. My wife is from the US originally, and she had lived in London, England with me while I was at Fordham's for, for 15 years. And we had a small child at that time, and she kind of had a hankering to get back to the US at that time and be closer to her family. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to move to the US with some of the problems it had. So Canada was kind of a neutral third country. And uh, I was lucky when I started looking, which is around about 2008, when there was a number of firms from Canada that were actually hiring out of the UK. I guess there was a shortage of, of engineers in Canada at the time. So there was a bunch of firms at the time, Cohos Evermy, as they were, mm. Cobalt and Stantec were all, were all looking at that time. And I had reached out to a few companies and had visited Toronto and quite liked it. You know, it was close enough to drive to visit my wife's family, but it wasn't so close. It was like a day's drive, but you can drive it. It's not a a flight. And Stantec out of Vancouver were hiring at that time. And I wrote an application and said, like, you guys seem really interesting, but I don't want to work in Vancouver. And my wife was like, well, we're just swapping one six-hour flight to the US for another, so it, it didn't really work. And I met a guy who's actually from the UK originally who was working, had been hired by the Vancouver office, but they'd sent him back to the UK to go and scope out uh, potential recruits. So I ended up meeting him in, it was in a pub in King's Cross Station uh, <laughs> at, at lunchtime. For, as for, engineers for do. <laughs> yeah, as, as you do. And things went from there. I traveled went back to Toronto, met up with the, the team there, had some late night conversations with them as well from home, um, trying to iron out timing and stuff like that. And it still, I mean, it still took me probably a year or two years to get to the point where I was kind of mentally ready to make that leap. And I think just getting everything in order on getting our apartment put on the market and sold and stuff like that. So it took a while to get over here. And then when I got here, having done mechanical and electrical together, people just kind of went, well, you can't, you can't <laughs> no, do both. So we don't do that. Like that. <laughs> so at that point, I said, okay, I'll, mechanical, you know, it's the physics are the same wherever up to a point. Yeah. It's moving heat, it's moving air, it's moving water. Wherever you are, it doesn't really make a difference. Whereas the electrical systems in North America and Canada are quite, quite different to Europe and the UK and uh you know, even at a level of just build, building distribution and having multiple yeah. transformers and stuff like that, you don't really see that in the UK. So I thought, well, that that's the fit for me. And then uh, I've worked my way up through Stantec, um, came over as a designer because I had no 
no Canadian experience, so I started as a mechanical designer, got my Canadian experience, went through the process of getting licensed in Ontario, and then kind of worked my way up through Stantec, through managing a mechanical group to managing a full no. engineering team, and then uh, in Toronto, and then made the move to, to our Waterloo office about, uh, well, three years mm. now, which is a bit closer for me in terms of a commute. How I got where I am today. There's some really interesting things there I want to talk Deconstruct yeah. a little bit, right? So one, yeah. you started as a civil engineer, and then you wind up as what we in the UK call a building services engineer. Yeah. And then you have to specialise with yeah. Canada. So when I tell people in Canada, like, like building services engineers, so in the UK, if I went to a meeting when I was a property developer, and there'd be someone from Max Fordham, yeah. and it was a mechanical guy, say, I would expect him to be able to talk about the electrical bits yeah. as well. Yeah. That yeah. does not happen in North America. Yeah. Yeah. That's like heresy. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Right, you know, get you might be specialist in mechanical and a generalist electrically, or vice versa. But you're expected to understand building services, right? Yeah, there's no yeah. building services degrees here or specialism. It drives me yeah. crazy. And elevators, lifts as well. Yeah. We did those. Yeah, we specified those too. Yeah. Yeah. So in the UK, the building services engineer would write a performance spec for the elevator yeah. and do the probability calculations to go with it as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, the know, traffic calculations, do the shaft drawings and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, passenger and goods, yeah. I'm glad you're corroborating that, because when I tell people, they look at me like yeah. I'm a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is the occasional exception to that. When I think of uh, Tim McGann, who had dual degrees, actually, one in electrical uh-huh. engineering, one in mechanical engineering, and he was one of those rare ones in Canada that did actually did do both. But it's the, um, what I found strange in Canada was the extreme silo approach, right? So even in some offices, in some practices, I think Stantec mm-hmm. is one of them, right? If you're a mechanical engineer, that's you're not necessarily doing the plumbing. They're going to send that to the plumbing team and someone else is going to stamp that drawing. I think that tends to be, I find, is more of a US versus Canada thing. Right. Like they have plumbing and fire protection folks in the US Yeah, that do that, whereas Canada were a bit more generalist than that. I worked so. on an airbase, an American job, clearly, right? And I got the cover sheet for all the drawings. Yeah. So I had like fire engineer stamp. Plumbing yeah. stamp, mechanic. Yeah. It was like a freaking yeah. summer's passport. Yeah. Front of yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 No, I, anyway. think, I, I think it's a little bit joined, more joined up in Canada than the. the yeah. US, yeah. It is that yeah. hybrid. But the message yeah. here is you can start somewhere and wind up somewhere else, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think if you ask any building engineer where you started, like, did you imagine this to be the end point where your career yeah. would take yeah. you? No, absolutely not. Yeah. No. The other thing I like was your comment about, you know, someone in the family, because you're right. No one as a kid goes, you know what? I want to do something that's really difficult with loads of heavy mathematics and science. I really want that. Said no yeah. kid ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just realized how unlikely it was that I wound up in engineering just saying that out loud. <laughs> it would make my old school, high school There's teacher laugh. Considering a career change to something else, Adam. Oh, yeah. I'm so done career-wise. I have done me. You got to stick a fork in me. It's over. Just a short sidebar here. Like yeah. one of the things when I think about a background in civil engineering, and then coupled with the practical experience in mechanical and electrical, then getting a chance to work with an architect, like that's a great yeah. exposure to a diversity yeah. within yeah. the within the yeah. design team. Yeah. That's hugely valuable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are actually a generalist, right? But with a specialism in mechanical engineering now, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't claim to be able to design electrical systems in Canada yeah. at this point. But yeah, I've done a bit. I know enough to be dangerous, I guess, in terms of what other disciplines do and what they 
they should do and what they don't do and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And can speak about those other things to other engineers and architects. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you're right, Robert. I think it's interesting that there's not many courses around in terms of higher education where you get all of that. I mean, there used to be lots more building services engineering courses, university and college in the UK that were offering that. And a lot of those have disappeared, I think. I mean, I, which is sad, but I think, I mean, I'm heartened in, in Canada that I've seen a growth in courses that actually offer building engineering type curricula. So there's, there's one that there's a building engineering course at Conestoga that's very, yeah. that's very good. There's one in Quebec at uh, Concordia. And now there's one, there's one in my backyard here that's, uh, that's not very old at University of Waterloo, an architectural engineering course. It's superb. I've been lucky enough to have some involvement on the industry side there and also some tutoring there as well with some of the final year students. And it's really great. I mean, they teach them. They're engineering students. Don't get me wrong. They're not They're not yeah. architects. It's an engineering degree and you get an engineering right. degree at the end of it. But they teach them a bit about architecture, a bit about how buildings fit together, a bit of structural, a bit of mechanical, a bit of electrical a bit of energy and sustainability. So they come out, and this is, I think this is the first graduating class this summer, I believe. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really interested to see where they end up because they're super smart. They can draw, which like for me is like, that's huge. Just having engineers that can draw and sketch. So I'll be really in- interested where they end up at the end. You know, do they end up in architecture firms because they can be that bridge between architecture and engineering or, engineers or contractors or clients a skill set is probably really useful for contractors who are having to take them drawings and like get them refined get them to like construction level right yeah Yeah. and just just the coordination pulling all the bits together pulling the design pulling the trades pulling the equipment pieces together absolutely so i think there's there's a real market there. I'm just, as I say, I'm interested to see where they end up. But uh, yeah. really now, was that a, was that a program that was led by John Straub at the Waterloo? No, I don't think so. It's it um, Scott Walbridge was the lead out of the civil. Okay. Somebody else has taken it over recently. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think you know we've had Dr. Bill Bonfleth on. Yes. You know, and there's a program, architectural engineering program, that's one of the leaders on the continent for sure. Mm-hmm. The students that they've produced out of Penn State, yeah, they are. They're second to none. I mean, there's some great. There's great universities all around specializing in engineering and architecture. But the architectural engineering is that's a different breed altogether. They come out really well prepared, or more, or more prepared, I should say. What I think is interesting about Waterloo as well is there's opportunities for them to specialize as well. So if they think, okay, really, I'm really excited about HVAC or controls or lighting, they can pick those particular modules and get skilled up a bit more before they come out into the industry as well and if they've got a particular passion too. I've got to say, yeah, Penn State and Waterloo, yeah. those are great comparisons. They're very sort of analogous to each other, aren't they? Uh-huh. They've got that little bit of magic dust on them that puts them a little bit special. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So the reason, one of the reasons we wanted you on, because yeah. I read your piece on LinkedIn and now on your website about your experiences mentoring yeah, one of your mantles at Stantec, apart from being you know mechanical engineer, international man of mystery from Scotland, you know, <laughs> is mentoring and getting people through. I guess yeah. you're taking in young graduates and then you're helping them get that four years experience and register. Right? Is that the deal? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm doing less of that in a formal way than maybe I have 
in the past. But yeah, trying to be a wise mentor for people and help the folks that are coming up through Stantec in, in my office and other offices get through that process, get through the licensing process. Having been through it myself and particularly from coming from outside of Canada and not having the Canadian background and helping folks to navigate that. I got involved through PEO as well. They had a licensure assistance program, which was really folks that maybe had come from overseas that didn't have a Canadian engineering degree that were trying to navigate their way through the system and get that experience and you know write up their professional engineering report and stuff like that. And really enjoyed that as well as just a kind of a way to a way to give back to the industry and to my colleagues and really help them get through that process. There's a real need, I think, for, you know, I'm an immigrant myself, right? So I used to have a lot of sympathy. We'd hire from the UK and Ireland a lot because I was looking for what I knew, which was building services engineers, right? But again, they get here and they've got to get that experience. And there's a real need for like a conversion course, like a six-month conversion course or a year conversion course where they could just be pushed into a program that would spit them out the other end with what they need, right? And it was yeah. really difficult for a lot of people, right? Because they've moved, they're trying to establish a new career. Yeah. And a new- oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And no. you've seen that with some of the EITs that I worked with. You know, you're trying trying to hold down a job and, you know, somebody says, okay, you need to do a, these exams in order to yeah. qualify because we don't recognize your your degree and you're trying to trying to work, raise a family and do degree level, university level exams. It's tough, yeah. I don't know. I know there's credentials matter, but God, there's got to be some way to recognize. I've got to tell you, we used to have a bias to Irish and British people yeah. because they could hit the ground here and be good from the day they arrived. But they always had that dog on their back till they got through that process, you know? I see it changing as well. I think PO in Ontario are changing their arrangements. Like the EIT program is going away. That's disappearing. And right. um, they haven't announced exactly what's coming, but in May, between May and July, they're launching a new program. So I'm hopeful to see that there's some changes there and uh, maybe some help for folks that are, are coming into the industry to get there quicker. I think, I mean, it's things like just accelerating the process, not taking two years to get through the application process, even it's condensing that down and giving people decisions quickly so they're not hanging around. So I'm positive about that. There's a level of absurdity. Yeah. Someone said to me once, it's a bit like Horatio Nelson, if he came to Canada, he wouldn't be able to be an admiral because he couldn't speak French, you know. Yeah, he's one of the greatest admirals. <laughs> you know, there's that. There's a lot mm-hmm. of self-inflicted wounds sometimes in Canada. But let's let go on that. What I want to talk about is, so when I was at Cobalt Engineering and yeah. I've had other jobs, you know, yeah. I go through the process of inter- interviewing graduates and it, it was one of the most depressing things. It used to get me down. I'd go home like, oh my God. Because you'd interview a graduate. So it's not their fault. They've been... Push through a university system, particularly Queen's graduates, by the way. I don't know what they tell them there, but <laughs> they come out and someone's told them they grow an 80, 90 grand a year. You're awesome. You're great. Go out into the world, do great things. You know, they give them that ring, they have the ceremony. Mm. And then they come to an interview with me and I'm thinking, you're crazy. I couldn't even let you in front of a client for two years. <laughs> and I'm yep. certainly not paying you more than 40, 50 grand yeah. a year. You know, it's like, yeah. The disappointment when reality hit them was so, so great. And I used to get, I couldn't do it. I had to stop doing it. It used to depress me. <laughs> but yeah, Adam, you make a point there. Like when we would hire engineers out of university yeah. and during their 
articling period, like it was two years before you were confident enough to say, okay, well, we'll let you do your stuff on your own. (laughs) And the reality is we've talked about this on the show. I mean, we wouldn't let them touch a computer for the first six months because we forced them to do manual calculations so that they understood the consequences of the numbers. You know, so it is, it's at least minimum two years out of school or to just get comfortable with Mm -hmm. the process of design and developing that critical thinking that's necessary, right? Mm. How are you finding it? Because you're actually in this. Like Robert and I are sort of semi-retired yeah. now, but you're dealing with this. So how are you finding yeah. graduates? What sort of quality are they and how are they coping with this transition to work? I, I mean, I, I have in the past seen some of what you've described. Not for a while. I think the caliber of the students and graduates that we're seeing are high, that they're interested, they're engaged. They're very interested in energy and sustainability. And that's very often the hook that's kind of brought them to the buildings and building engineering, I find. I think I think you're right, though. I think if you're doing a mechanical engineering, a general mechanical engineering degree, and you come out of school, you may not have had exposure to buildings at all. Zero. In your course. Like, unless you're taking those specific yeah. modules, sure. um, you're not going to necessarily know what a mechanical engineer does in buildings. Where, and then you've got somebody like coming out of the RK course at Waterloo with hitting the ground running. So yeah. you've kind of got to tailor your approach to the folks that are coming in. I see interest from the students coming in as well in buildings. When you say like, okay, you can you can go and design motor cars and spend five years designing brake shoes for vehicles, <laughs> or you can come and design whole buildings and you can work on fifty buildings in the same amount of time you touch. And see those buildings completed and as a tangible, actual thing that you can go and see. That excites them as well. Yeah. We did a 16-week boot camp. And that course was specifically for engineering firms that brought in a new person. Uh-huh. Uh, again, to get them up to speed on everything from load calculations to valve yeah. authority to radiant heating, cooling, all that kinds of stuff. Yeah. And it was difficult for, like you guys were talking about, for the young engineer or the new family coming out of school to participate in that boot camp because they had yeah. so many other. And as you guys know, when you're in any kind of a boot camp thing, there's the reading load is yes. high. Like you've yeah. got it. Yeah. And if you don't put in the time, you're not going to do it. So the reality was, yeah. although it was a great course, the only people that could really pass it were actually we had a number of PhDs that went through the program. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they were academics, and they had the time to do the reading yeah. and to do the work assignments, right? And it's not that the other guys and girls didn't get value out of the course. It's just that it was just so intense. Yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you're probably uh, you're drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. That's interesting really when, uh, when you talk about the reading. And I, I remember in, in the early days of my career, going home from work with, like, a book in my bag and sitting on the subway train, just absorbing as much as I could, in the, but, you know, whether that was a book on plumbing or yeah. architecture or history or whatever, you know, just being a sponge and just trying to absorb as much as I could because I, I was interested and I wanted to learn as much as I could in that short period of time. And I, mean, I think it's it's interesting, and I, I mentioned it in my piece as well. Like, I, there's always new stuff to learn, and that's one of the things that I love about buildings. Like nobody. There's nobody I've met that knows everything about buildings and buildings engineering. Just, <laughs> you know, Max was great. He knew a ton of stuff, but he didn't yeah. know 
everything. So there's always new things to learn and technology is always developing. And that rate of change is continuing to accelerate. And I you know, I think about, you were talking about coming into the, the industry and making people do hand calcs. And I remember when I started doing hand drawings, with, right, 94, yeah. it was still, we hadn't transitioned to wow. computer, to CAD. We had some we had some AutoCAD workstations, but there was only a few dotted around the office and we used them. I think one of the projects that I worked on when I started, it was the first project I think that was done mainly in AutoCAD, but we still doing hand drawings of details and things like that on film and ink and scrubbing <laughs> them out, all that kind of thing. So I've got an appreciation of, you know, the importance of sketching, like, and I mentioned it before, like just being, getting new grads to sketch stuff don't just jump on the CAD workstation or into Revit like think about I mean I think doing pen and ink makes you think about what you're going to draw before you draw you plan out (laughs) on the sheet what are you going to draw how what are you going to show and I think just taking a breath before you jump and just sketch out because it's a it's a skill you know you're not if you're out on site talking to a plumber or you're in an architect's office you're not going to have your workstation with you you know you need to be able to explain and communicate in a visual way what you're talking about so it's i I gotta share this story with you so i was in hawaii on vacation and landing on the big island i had a big project to finish so i would actually walk to the beach and then i would do sketches in the sand with my feet (laughs) and because i had an ability to understand scale and size and i knew the equipment that we wanted and the kind of dimensions i i would do iterations after iterations so i would get one drawn i go now nah, was but i didn't have to worry about because the water came and wiped out the slate <laughs> and i got to start and i got to start again with oh, the fresh slate right yeah, <laughs> and people fantastic. would come walking by and they'd be looking at the drawing looking at me and i'm going yeah don't worry about it it's <laughs> engineering yeah. and it was yeah. great and then eventually you know when i found the schematic that ultimately that i knew was going to work i took a picture of it and then sent it back to our uh, draft people and said that's what we need oh, draw that. yeah. <laughs> in the uk you are taught that all building design starts and ends with a schematic mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how that's how i was taught and mm-hmm. schematics yeah. have a lot of good information on as well now, the yeah. whole system yeah you have that circle and divide into four quads there. It's just great. I, yeah. I missed that yeah. when I got here. That was my yeah. first comment when I arrived in North America. Where are the schematics? Well, we don't do them on all everything. What? <laughs> that but it's but, a great feedback loop, isn't it? Because when you're developing concepts and you're starting to put pen to paper and then yeah. working out all of the challenges, the dimensional challenges, the engineering challenges, yeah. the integration with all the other systems, and then you get out, like in the old days, get out onto the job site and just to see all the conflicts that occur. Well, yeah. I think it provides feedback and it's a great training ground because I want to think not often, but the occasion we would get someone through our office that couldn't see three dimensional, like they couldn't imagine the third mm-hmm. dimension. No, that's know? tough. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, being able to, to imagine conflicts that might occur with other systems, you know, that was a, well, that was and cool. there's nothing that quite focuses your mind when you're on a site and there's a bunch of contractor standing around with your drawing <laughs> going, yep. who the hell designed this thing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and having, I think, developing that skill, you know, you're dealing with people that have been on the tools for 25 yeah. years and yeah. they know what they're doing. And maybe you're trying to tell them to do something that's a bit different to what they would normally do. And 
being able to communicate that in a nice way. Yeah, this is a, their buy-in, or ultimately, you know, having the humility to listen to them and actually go, yeah, you're right. That would be a better way of doing it. Let's do it your way. That's a very underrated attribute, humility. Yeah, because you know these guys. There's an 80, 90 percent chance they're right and you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> back onto that, I was just right out of school. I went to go work for a geotechnical engineering company, and I was I had worked my way up into a field technician role and so I was sent out to my very first concrete pour I had to do samples yeah. and I remember the lab manager the, from the engineering firm he said Robert if you get there and they're pouring concrete and they're watering down that concrete as it's coming down the chute like you stop the pour right <laughs> and so like I'm this wow. like I'm like this 19 year old <laughs> pimply face skinny little yeah. shit wearing rubber boots and I'm gonna go tell these guys that are Italian and German with these big rakes and shovels that no, you you got to stop, guys. <laughs> I mean, fear. That yeah. was fear. Yeah. That was what that was. But I also learned at that time that when you represent the engineering firm, you have authority. And there yeah. is a respect for yeah. that voice when you come yeah. onto the yeah. job site. I, I think it's when, where it goes wrong, and I don't think it happens as much as maybe it did 10, 20 plus years ago, but people being, you know, I'm the engineer and I'm right. I don't see that. I think that has gone away, I think. I mean, yeah, it's definitely going away there. Yeah, that's good. Going back to to graduates, I I sort of feel sorry for them in a way because let's say you've done, I don't know, a mechanical engineering degree at Queen's Mm. or Western, right? You're academic by definition. If you've gone through the struggle session of four years of getting that thing, you know, You've done some pretty tough stuff, right? Yeah. But it's all theory, not applied. And they're moving. Yeah. When you come into the built environment, you're yeah. talking about applied yeah. engineering here, right? Yeah, yeah. The how-to is missing. Mm-hmm. This is why that course you described at Conestoga is really good mm-hmm. because it deals with the how-to. It gives you the yeah. do this. It's part skill, part theory, part academic, right? There's a number of courses as well that are doing co-op programs where you can yeah. go and do, okay, it's... It's not like a sandwich course, if you know yeah. what I mean, Adam. It's not like that, but you're you're at least going, you're spending terms out in the industry learning real stuff, you know, and yeah. you're actually working. And we've had great success here with the co-op program with universities because the students have an opportunity to try out a lot of different things or potential career yeah. paths. Like we've had folks that have come through, we've had as co-op students, and, you know, maybe they've done something else before that they tried and they're like, well, I don't want to do that, but actually I, I like buildings and I want to try this out and they've come to us and they've come back again. So they've kind of done the boomerang and once they've graduated, they've said, okay, I'd like to come and work for you guys full time. Yeah. Now, like, now that I know, I know what you do. Yeah. I heard in the UK recently, you can now do, and Stantex been involved in this in the UK as well. There is a, a building engineering apprenticeship program. I can't remember which university it's out of, but it's kind of like that sandwich type course arrangement where, where you're spending your four days a week working and then you're doing One a day, day in, yeah. in college. And that, I thought that kind of thing had disappeared 20 years ago. So it's Well, it's that great when I went it. through, you did that. I worked and then they put me through technical college at night. Yeah. Great thing with that is you go to college, they explain something to you, you wouldn't get it. You go into yeah. the office the next day yeah. and say, yeah. hey, tell me what is this? Yeah. I've got yeah. this clip on here. Can you translate it for yeah. me? Yeah. Like, yeah. But I, I, what, right. what you, were, you were saying about that kind of, about coming out of school and then going into industry and you're, you're kind of you're back at square one. But I remember 
And it stuck with me still when, when I was starting out about to go to university. I went to like an information day or something and they had some graduates from the course that were working and came and did a little kind of discuss, a little chat with prospective students about what they were doing. Um, and I remember there was one guy and he said, when you go to primary school and you know nothing and you drew it on the blackboard with a bit of chalk, I don't, don't have anything like that here that I can draw it, so you just have to imagine. But said, you start out down here and you learn all this stuff and then you get to here and you think you know everything and then you go to secondary school and you do that again. Yeah. And then you go to university and you start there and you know nothing and then you spend four years, five years at university. And then you get up there and you think you know everything and then you go out into the industry and realize that you're back down there again. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's what I was saying earlier. There's always new stuff. You're always learning. Yeah. Like, it never but, stops, really. You know, like if you're Stantec, but you know, this is the same problem yeah. we had at Cobalt, you take a graduate in, someone has got to sit them down and say, look, this is how you size a pump. Yes. How yeah, you size a duck. Yeah. This is how you yeah. select a chiller. Yeah. There needs to be a place for them to go and study that and then come and ask you about it rather than you sit mm. them down and, Taking them back to school, right? Yeah, and I think it's getting the level right. And it's, yeah. you know, you don't want to be spoon-feeding people. Yeah. You don't have the time to do that. But I think, and the way I learned as well when I was at Fordham's was, you know, that you would talk to somebody and they would say, okay, we'll need you to do this. Here's where to find information. Here's the codes and standards that apply or here's the books to look at or whatever. And it would give you enough to kind of get you going and then let you go off and go so far. And then they would come back and check in or or I would get to the point where I was like, okay, I've gone as far as I can and I think this is the answer, but I'm not sure or I don't know, I'm not sure what this is or where to go next and kind of circling back at that point or being rescued so uh, like, gone down a rabbit hole yeah. by the person yeah. I was working with. I mean, it's a good way to learn because you're learning through inquisition, yeah. right? But yeah. it's almost like an R&D project and there's a little risk with that where you put something out, someone's busy or they're on vacation, they can't check your work, it goes out of the office, then you get a, oh my God, phone calls coming in, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's about quality control then and, yeah. you know, making sure anything that's going out of the office, somebody else yeah. should be looking at it. Should yeah, be absolutely. in the key word there. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. I do have a lot of sympathy for young engineers because you've got to do okay at university, then you'll get lucky to land in a firm and find someone who's going to develop you, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the luckiest thing that could happen is you come into Stantec and there's this, this old crotchety guy there who's going to take you on his win. He's going to beat you up a bit, but he's going to get you somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I said to my daughter when she graduated. I said, the best thing to happen to you is you go to a firm 
and some someone you probably won't like for a while is just going to make you do hard stuff and teach you, right? But there's luck involved in that, right? Yeah. If you get someone yeah. who doesn't care about yeah. you, just say, here's the books, yeah, yeah see you yeah. later, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, you were talking earlier about people want, you know, expecting to jump, coming out of school and wanting to jump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right away, jump into, you know, okay, I'm going to go and design this. And yeah. I remember at the start of my career doing, you know, drainage layouts and builder's work drawings and stuff like, you know, the stuff that was kind of not very exciting and sometimes, or radiator schedules or, you know, stuff like that, which it needed to get done and you needed to learn how to do it. Yeah, yeah. It is a tough road to be an engineer. This is what I say, you've got, you've got your four-year degree or your college and whatever. Then you've got to do four or five years and then you're just about having the training wheels yeah. coming off, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's yeah. like a eight year, nine, ten year process, yeah. right? To be yeah. okay yeah. and not yeah. do major damage. Yeah. Well, I and mean, I've seen the mentality as well of, okay, I've got my stamp now. I'm ready to go and stamp things. Yeah, stamping everything. I'm stamping it. <laughs> you know, not yet. You know, we'll yeah. let you know when we think you're ready for that. So, yeah, it takes time. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's. Yeah, and I think even my own career, so I didn't go to the university path. I went through the technology mm -hmm. path. Yeah. And lucky for me, at the time when I graduated, Asset, which was the technology organization in Alberta, had a high-level practice. That was the RET, Registered Engineering Technology. That was the mm -hmm. highest you could get. Yeah. But you weren't permitted to, We were, although we were part of the legislation, we weren't permitted to stamp drawings. And so Asset worked along with APEGA, the engineering Geology Association, yeah. and worked on a program where high-level technicians, through exams mm -hmm. and verification by colleagues that you've mm -hmm. worked with over a number of mm -hmm. years, where you could have a limited practice. So, so mm -hmm. I ended up taking that path. But Dave, you made a statement, which I really love, and that is, is that the business about spoon-feeding people information. Yeah. I think any good engineer, any good technologist has an innate sense of curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. yeah. And absolutely, you know, it's not waiting for the spoon to come. They're looking, for, they're looking for the food and, and yeah. where that can, you know, feed. And and I was lucky because I had a chance to work with some amazing engineers and technologists along the yeah. way, yeah. and got to work on some really great projects as well, great clients. But that would have never happened if it had not been for the curiosity, you know. Yeah, and I think you need to have that because I think as the industry continues to develop and evolve and these new technologies are coming along, you've got to have that thirst. You've got to have that curiosity to want to learn the new stuff that's coming as well. Like I, Yeah. Well, I remember the very first when I, I hired somebody to teach me how to do FEA analysis. And I didn't have the brains to set up a lot of <laughs> a lot of the modules. But he, he was very patient with me, and I was paying him too, but, you know, still, he was yeah, patient with yeah. me. And together, we worked out some really great models. One of them was actually a soil temperature simulation that ran for the whole year. Uh -huh. So, you know, we were taking bin files, weather data files, CBIC files for the whole year and then doing a simulation. And the ability to create those individual files, which were done, I think, on a minute basis, if I remember correctly, and then sew it together into a full animation so you could actually watch what happens. Right, you could see the temperature changing, yeah. Now, both of you guys know I would never be able to do that again. <laughs> that was such an intense exercise. You know, yeah. it just consumed yeah. my, it must have consumed us. I don't know. It seemed like almost six weeks to put together that yeah. final product. And thank God I would never have to do it again. But to be able to understand the geometry 
Yeah. And then be able to get data and bring it in and then let the software do its thing to be able to explain to people why you need to have certain amounts of foundation insulation or below slab insulation and how moisture and soil characteristics influence the connectivity. And that's what we did it for because there was Mm -hmm. a big, at that time, the National Building Code was challenging industry, Mm -hmm. particularly those that were in the radiant heating business, about our slab insulation. And they made Uh people... If you were going to do slab insulation, I think it didn't matter where you were. It was going to be four inch, you know, and the argument was, well, hang on a second here. Like if you've got soils that aren't very conductive and you can demonstrate historically, like you're Mm. above water tables, your soils are dry, sandy. Why do you need four inch? Right. Uh, And their argument was, well, this was for residential buildings and no one's going to do soil analysis. No one talks to the geotechnical engineers, blah, blah, blah. So we're just going to cover our ass and go four inch. But just about crippled the industry until we made the argument that no, hang on a second, there are tools that can tell us whether we need forages mm-hmm. or not. That's, that's you know? So Robert and I are sort of like industry adjacent now, I guess. Would yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're dealing with day-to-day issues. How yeah. are you finding the ability to recruit people and retain people? Because there's a lot of people, mm-hmm. Robert, my age, who are now like leaving the industry, yeah. right? Yeah, And I always thought there would come a bit of a crisis at that point, not because we're so awesome, just the numbers that are going, right? How is Stantec in your area finding that? I think here we've been pretty lucky with in terms of retention, like we've yeah. managed to hang on to the folks that we've got. I think I have seen prior to the pandemic, there was a drift of people going either getting scooped up by contractors right, or going client side yeah. as well. We had clients that were... Mm were hiring staff as well because of the particular skill sets that they had. It seemed to settle down during the pandemic. I think we found the folks that we had were staying. And there was a period when it was tough to find people because I think nobody wanted to move, I think, at that point. And there was so much uncertainty in the industry. And I think it's still tough to find good people. I think that's always been an issue. I think it's maybe gotten a little bit harder. I think the companies that have got good people are kind of hanging on to them yeah. really tightly and I think anxiety about the economy and stuff like that makes it more difficult I think for people to want to make a move but no I, I think we've had good success with finding people it just takes a while to find them I think is what, I what we've found is a key. and getting the right people getting the right mindset will fit in with the team and that kind of the right attitude that want to learn if it's you know young younger folks that are enthusiastic that are passionate yeah yeah, I mean, so before I sort of left work full time, the demographic was there were a lot of people sort of like, say, 55 and up, yeah, even 50 and up. And there was a lot of people coming in young, enthusiastic, yeah. fired up by yeah. the green movement, right? And in the yeah. middle, that sort of 35 to 45. Yeah, kind of missing just, middle, yeah. And now yeah. I guess at the moment, that 35 to 45 is moving up now. Yeah. So... Is it still that uneven, like it's like a barbell at the top and bottom with nothing in the middle? Or Sometimes it... it feels like that, yeah, that there's kind of not a lot in the, yeah. the, that middle. But yeah, I think there's, and as I say, there's been people that have moved out of the industry at that level. And you're right, I think we're now at the point where we're starting to see the bottom. Yeah. Kind of, they're growing up now and, and filling in that gap now. But yeah, yeah, I think I think it's been, I have seen that in the past. Yeah, and it, it's been like that for a while. How important is the, I'll just call it the green movement or sustainability as a recruiting tool? Is that a thing? I mean, there's a lot of um, fired up young people I see now. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. I, I think it's crucial. I think, you know, we they're coming out of school and it's important to them that they're going to organizations that are doing something about climate change and yeah. Uh, 
committed to sustainability and are walking the walk. So, and I, I hear it from the interviews that I've done. They talk about it, they ask about it, and I see it with, with the students at, at Waterloo as well. You know, they're asking about, they're talking about energy, they're talking about sustainability on their projects. Yeah. They're doing the energy modeling for their projects. There's one thing that certainly the COVID has done, and that has brought awareness to the role of engineering and buildings and controlling yes. airborne yeah. pathogens. And when yeah. I think of, like in your, in Ontario, Joey Fox and David Elstrom, David, who we had actually on the show at one point, mm-hmm. and the work that they've done through the organization in Ontario, publishing yes. those four documents. Yes. You know, people are reading that and they're seeing that, like, they get information from public health and, well, you know what, here we are, was it the fourth year and we still have people dying all over the world. Yeah. yeah. But the engineering solutions, they seem to be working, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. funny how that works, right? You know, if you got something in the air and you filter it out, it kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's not complicated, right? It's just but, inconveniently so, expensive. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's brought an awareness of kind of health and wellness in buildings yeah. to the fore, and the, the role of engineers in that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Actually, yeah. The role of the engineer, I think, has been enhanced oddly by COVID, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah and sort of the society's value of the engineer, right? It's sort yeah. of moving up the pecking order a little bit. About time as well, by the way. <laughs> Hey, yeah, here's a here's a question for you both, you yeah. guys. I mean, yeah. you know, if you think about the role that engineers have had, why haven't organizations like LEED or even the architects, AIA or what is it, REBA? What's the Canadian architectural? REIC. REIC. Yeah. Like, why are these organizations not stepped up? I mean, they're in the building industry just as much as we are. What happened? Where are their voices? It's hard to make effective ventilation sexy. I think you'll find. But when you think about the ethical obligations. They have the same ethical obligations as we do in terms of protecting the health and safety of occupants. And it's like the engineers have certainly stepped up, but where the hell are the architects and even the interior designers for that matter? They have the same ethical obligations, Mm -hmm. not the decorators, but the designers, right? People that are responsible for fire exit strategies and densities and floor plates, that type of stuff. Why would you think that they would hear their voices? If you're looking at at indoor air quality and the materials that you're specifying and that kind of thing, yeah, and VOCs from furniture or carpets or whatever, you know, that's, yeah. that's all part of it, yeah. It's yeah. hard to get architects excited about IAQ, public health, right? In their mind, I think that's just, you know, that's, that's uh, they'll fix that for it, me, right? it, it, The nuts and bolts, but I think there's a genuine interest in healthy buildings and making buildings yeah. nice, comfortable spaces to be in. I don't think anybody sets out deliberately to make a building that's not, but I think there's certainly, I think with standards like well, for example, yeah. I think that's raised it as an issue now and uh, got the attention of architects and engineers as a, as a benchmark for how to build healthier buildings. So I think that's changing. But if you're talking about the nuts and bolts of IEQ, no, I think that's no. not necessarily what an architect is interested in. But I think if you talk in terms of healthy buildings and health and wellness of buildings, then, yeah, I think there's buy-in there for sure. But, but you know, what's interesting about the IEQ, what I think going back to earlier in the conversation, talking about going into engineering and being an expert, it's, Whenever yeah. I hear somebody's an expert in something, like I roll my eyes. <laughs> if you just take IAQ alone, right? So you're yeah. talking about physics, you're talking about chemistry, you're talking about air, humidity, moisture, heat transfer, mass yeah. transfer, report writing, investigations. You yeah. know, there's, yeah. it's a, no, there's it's... a list of all the things that you it would take you several lifetimes to become a true indoor mm-hmm. air quality expert. Mm-hmm. It really mm-hmm. would. 
Do you know what? That word expert, wherever you see that in a LinkedIn profile or a business card, you should run as hard as you can. In your- <laughs> yeah. Don't call yourself an expert because there's always somebody that knows more than... It reminds me of Margaret Thatcher. She said, you know, how do you know someone's a lady? If they tell you they're a lady, they're not, right? That's for someone else to say, right? It's like an, <laughs> if someone tells you an expert, they're not. But you know what you need? You need a practitioner. Yeah. That is the most undervalued job title in the world, practitioner. Give practitioner, me a, oh, that's a truth. Yeah. Day, every day over an expert. I'll get. I'll take that. But to your, you, to your previous question, Robert, I thought as you guys were talking, one of the reasons architects haven't felt the need to sort of step up maybe, right? It's because this silo approach, right? So architects see themselves, they draw beautiful buildings, they design beautiful buildings, and engineering is someone else, right? So there's this separation of them from the rest of the team, right? Whereas, say, back in the day, you know, when buildings were a lot less complex, the master architect, the master builder had that responsibility for everything, right? But as that responsibility has been sort of siloed out and parceled out, I don't think architects think about it too much. They're too busy worrying about the fritting on the... I'm going to disagree with you there, Adam. Yeah? No, I work in an integrated practice with oh, architects yes. and engineers. So, you know, like I, it's what I do every day. I'm talking to architects and engineers. So it's what we do. We're not some kind of separate piece that the architect does their design and then we, we plug in afterwards. No, it's... That's a really good point. Do you think because Stantec are really are truly multidiscipline integrated practice, right? Yeah. Is that a yeah. superpower? Does that give them that an edge there, do you think? I think so, because I think to your point, you're not thinking in your silos or you're yeah. trying to avoid thinking in the silos and break out of the silos when you can. Yeah, I think so. I mean, but we're not the only firm that has that, but I think being able to being in the same office physically yeah. and being able to go and walk across and have a discussion with some with an architect or another engineer and say, you know, okay, well, can we just chat about this for two minutes and just look at this and yeah. think of that? Yeah, okay, yeah. off you go. You don't have to book a separate meeting a week in advance, you know. That's so I think it speeds up the whole process. Yeah. I think it makes coordination quicker, in my view. And I, you know, I, I like working with architects. Like that's why. That's how you got there, that's, right? That's how I got got into this <laughs> business because I, I I enjoy it. You know, it's what. Yeah what brought me to this business. So yeah, I enjoy it. I think what I find interesting in working with architects and engineers is the kind of difference in mindset about, you know, do engineers like, are we designers? Like do we do, do we do design with a capital D? Do we think of ourselves? Because I I talk with architects and I, I listen to them talking about design from an architectural standpoint. And I've talked to engineers before. I talked to an electrical engineering colleague of mine when we were having an event in the Toronto office that was about design and design excellence. And I said, you know, come with me to this thing. And he said, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I really do design. I said, of course you do. Come on. You know. So it's getting out of that mindset, I think, as yeah. well for engineers that we do do design and it's important and you know, it's good. It's quality stuff. You are right there. I, I retract my little diss there on architecture, right? Because Stantec are actually what the USGBC promote, the integrated design practice, yeah. right? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Well said, actually. I wanted to circle back with something Robert said just yeah. about the IAQ and the specialty thing as well. You know, I think that's being able to come into the industry as a new grad and you've got this whole world of stuff 
Yeah. And you can be a generalist and you can do HVAC and you can do plumbing, you can do electrical, structural, whatever. Like there's this whole world of stuff in buildings and you can be a generalist and do all of mechanical right. and do fire protection, plumbing and HVAC and so on. Or you can just be a specialist and just, okay, I just want to do indoor air quality or I just want to do controls and become, I won't say expert, but you can become the, yeah, you yeah. Can become the super an, practitioner in the that lead. way. Yeah. It's interesting, like on the IAQ stuff, for sure. And many years ago when NRC released the IA Quest program, I'm not, not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but it's indoor air quality program. It allows you to model VOC emissions. So you can build mm -hmm. a space, a 3D space, and you can yeah. put the paint in, put the carpet, put the drywall, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then you can then program ventilation rates in it. And then it'll actually do the initial release and then the decay. And we did many, many simulations for clients and then even for our own purposes. And that later became very valuable when dealing with clients in terms of talking about the smorgasbord of yeah. chemicals that are in yeah. the indoor environment. Yeah. And just simply by going from, say, synthetic carpets to more masonry type surfaces, that it cut the chemical list like to like 15 or 20 percent mm -hmm. of what, say, a carpet would. It didn't eliminate them altogether. But the ones that were left were not as harmful as some of like the benzenes and the toluenes and the formaldehydes mm -hmm. that you get in synthetics. Mm -hmm. And also the decay rates were much quicker. So you weren't seeing these long decay yeah. rates that can happen with synthetics. That right there is an entire specialty yeah. on its yeah. own. Yeah. Yeah. And I, although I wouldn't call myself a lead practitioner in that area, being a generalist and understanding mm -hmm. that role mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, it, then what it also does, then it draws the interior designers and the decorators into the dialogue with the yes. ventilation system yeah. and then also Absolutely. the architects. Of yeah. The yeah. Yeah. So. No, and it's interesting. And it, one of the things that prompted me to write the article originally was, you know, what specialties, what disciplines will exist in 10 years, 20 years that are dealing with problems that we can't even yeah. imagine right now? Like if you think about, where we were 20, 30 years ago and the tremendous changes that there's been in the industry. And, you know, we're talking now about climate change and decarbonization and embodied carbon and all that stuff, which, you know, really wasn't a thing 30 years ago. What skills are folks coming into the industry now going to have to learn? And we don't necessarily know, but they need to have that curiosity and that flexibility and interest to want to, to learn. I mean, I'm really, I've been reading a lot about AI recently and I'm thinking well how is that going to change what we do and how engineers do their work and there's kind of articles that you know are architects and engineers going to go out of business because of AI no I don't believe that I've had a play with some of the AI programs that are out there I did one with uh, DALI 2 yeah, uh, and you can give it a prompt and it'll do something um, and, and generate some images and I did one that was like you know hospital in a forest or something like that and it generated these these beautiful archi it was architectural rendering quality images wow. wow you know this is like some really cool looking buildings and then as you kind of looked at them in a bit more detail you kind of realized okay that one like the lines aren't quite square like the corners don't look quite right and then there was one it had a lovely tower but it had no windows. <laughs> and, you know, it's, so it's like, okay, it can, an AI can do a certain amount of work, but I don't think it's going to replace professionals yet. I think it may change how we design buildings and yeah. automation around laying out ductwork or pipework automatically. 
doing duck sizing and stuff like that may allow us to go and do other things that have other things of value perhaps but I think it's not there yet but I'm interested to see where that goes but you know I think okay we're going to have to train engineers how to wrangle you know is AI wrangler going to be a a specialty to be able to think it will to, to tell it you know either to teach it how to do it or feed it information or guide it or give it the right prompt ask it the right questions or those kind of things. My advice to any young engineer now would be try and focus or develop a specialism in writing algorithms and the integration of systems into smart buildings. You know what I mean? Like the, the yeah. IoT technology that's really going to tie this yeah. together. Yeah. So yeah. to be good at that, you're going to have to understand systems and buildings and be able to write the algorithm to exploit the systems yeah. and the buildings, right? It's a Venn diagram. So I'm like Kamala Harris, deep thoughts with Kamala Harris, Venn diagrams. But, you know, there's like the building, the systems and the technology. And there's this Venn diagram in the middle where a specialist will live that will be able to pull that lot together and optimize the what's it's out of it, right? Yeah. I remember when we started to look at pick valves and then motorized pick valves. And then I thought in the beginning that was companies like Danfoss would have been leading it. But then all of a sudden, Belimo comes out of left field. Yeah, just, just accelerated the whole data acquisition yeah. of flow and temperatures yeah. and pressures in, in HVAC systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that company, although they produce the hardware, it's what they're collecting that's of huge mm-hmm. value. Well, that's you know? where the money is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting, like, who are the companies or who are the engineers or the architects that are going to make those make those jumps that will, re- will raise up the rest of the industry as well? Or what are the ideas that will jump us to the next curve as well? I think that's really interesting to me. And I think, I hope it excites people coming into the industry yeah, as I mean, well, you know, the possibilities that are there. I'm convinced our future job's going to be building engineer data scientist. That job will evolve over the next yeah. 10 years because there's going to be buildings that are already spewing out God knows how yeah. much data, right? Yeah. Someone yeah. soon is going to be able to take that data plug it together, get the insights out of it and deploy yeah. an algorithm to exploit it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is going to be a sweet spot for a while for yeah. people who get there early. But I think again, I think that's where I see AI coming in as well. Yeah. Like to be able to crunch, do all that number crunching for yeah. you and yeah. spit out the digested data. Yeah. I think that will, yeah, that'll be a game changer as well. And then the practitioner is going to be able to interpret. So this is going to be the key. The practitioner will be able to interpret that data and tie it to their systems and engineering knowledge, right? That's the key. The data on its own is useless, right? Yeah. You know, so that's where we're going. I I don't know a whole lot about the AI stuff, but it seems to me that right now the input for AI is a person providing input, right, for this to run. But at some point, some point, the data can run the AI, can't it? I mean, it's looking for input. So even if you could, just to say you could, if you needed a control valve that could actually morph its characteristics based on what's actually happening, that would be kind of cool. But it could do that through data input. You wouldn't need a person to say, well, this needs to be an equal. Yeah, if it's self-learning. Yeah. Yeah. Making, you know, it's adjusting itself, seeing what happens over there and then going, okay. Okay, I'm going to change this. I'm going to open or close a bit more or change the characteristic. Yeah. AI is a prediction machine, right? It's actually predictive. That's the technology behind it. It predicts what's coming next. So for building control, that's actually quite a powerful thing, right? It's mm-hmm. trying to predict where that valve needs to be in the next step and the next step, right? Mm-hmm. That, so then whole feedback loops. And I think as designers as well, there's power there as well that, you know, and before you've built the building, if you've got a data set of, 
the 50 last buildings that you designed and how they performed, you know, I think you can probably get pretty, you know, you can get pretty close. I think an AI could get pretty close to modeling how your current design is going to perform based on that previous data and maybe suggest improvements. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and also right be size. able to say, okay, and we're doing this already with, with, um, can't remember the name, it's like iterative design where we're, we're running multiple simulations in parallel. So you can change one thing and then say, and yeah, look at what things actually have the most impact and it's able to run those simulations in parallel. So I think, you know, I see AI being able to take that to the next level and it, it's yeah. kind of self-optimizing it's going okay if i change this what happens if i change that to figure out what you know what the end point you're looking for is or, or what the options are i think that's kind of interesting, that's interesting. Piece. yeah that's cool i mean i think like for example on a snow melt system right integrating the weather data yeah, yeah. Into, into the control loop but it really doesn't i mean the logic that they have that are saying okay well the prediction is for a storm to come in but what it doesn't really have available to it is things like wind speed or moisture content or drifting Mm -hmm. or that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. where ai could look at previous storm characteristics and say well when this happened if then then this is how this is what we need to do and we will keep learning that over and over and over again to do that kind of analysis well and if it can do image recognition and you've got a security camera pointed outside right right and it can go oh yeah there's a snowdrift yeah, outside. Better, better do something. Yeah, that technology is sort of here, really, right? It is. Yeah, no, that, I've seen some stuff online about that already. Early stage, but it's coming. Yeah. So, man, it's an interesting time to be in buildings. But listen, we're coming up. Oh, on yeah. Right. It's, the, it be- it's the best time to be an engineer. Absolutely. Cool things. This is why training is important, because and people like you are very important in my view, because. You come out of university, right? And there's such a learning curve still. We've got to keep people enthusiastic yeah. and get them to understand yeah. the opportunity set in front of them, right? Yeah. There is a great career to be had here in any different path you want, yeah. right? Yeah. Pick your adventure, but you've got to keep them like that. Yeah. motivated, yeah. right? And this yeah. is where I think the industry doesn't do a great job and the universities suck horribly at this. There's a difference between hiring someone and recruiting someone. We're in the recruitment business. We're recruiting people for a career and an adventure, right? So that's how yeah. I put it. Yeah. But anyway, our last, when we come to the end, we okay. just ask a quick fire question. So you get one from each of us. Okay. Okay. So no phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go first. Uh, so Stantech, I have come to know Stantech through you and through working with Marcus Myers on yes. ASHRAE committees. Yeah. I'm sort of coming around to admiring them a lot more. And you know, their multidiscipline, their depth, their breadth, their coverage around the world. So Let's say I've left university and I'm coming to you, right? Give me three mm-hmm. tips to get through an interview and get a job at Stantech. <laughs> I think, tell me what you're passionate about. You know, what makes you want to jump out of the bed in the morning and yeah. start your day? I think for me, an interest in buildings, like, are you interested in buildings? Are you interested in design? Do you have an appreciation yeah. for design? And I think just be interested in engineering and have taken the time to find out about us as an organization. Yeah. Like, go to the website, see what Stantec does. Like, I'm so glad you said that because one of my interview questions always used to be, tell me what you know about us and how you yeah. found about us. Right? Yeah. Some of them go, well, I don't know. I've never even looked you up. Yeah. Take Thanks. the time to find out yeah. what we do. Like, yeah. Five minutes. Yeah. Absolutely spot. Notice there, everyone listening, David didn't say 
make sure you bring your degree certificate. Make sure you tell me how much your teacher loved you. No, it's like yeah. the soft stuff. Are you enthusiastic? Are you interested? Yeah. Am I wait? What you got to understand is when David's interviewing you, he's trying to work out if he's wasting his time or not, right? Yep. Be aware of that. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> yeah, when we were going through resumes, the pile that grew up interesting potential candidates were kids in high school that delivered papers. And the reason for that is because back in the day, those kids had to get up at five or six o'clock in the morning. They had to haul on their backs yeah. newspapers that weighed a ton. They had to go collect money at the end of the week for all the papers that they delivered the week before. They had to deal with dogs biting them, cars trying to run them over. They had to deal with the heat, the snow, yeah. the rain, right? And I always thought, if I asked you what you did during high school in your summertime or what you did after school, that told me a lot about what your character yeah. was. If you that's, work. that's me. I, that was my first job was delivering newspapers <laughs> early in the morning. <laughs> yep, right? <laughs> you don't do that now, but... My question to you, David, is yes, if you were talking to others in the industry that want to get into mentoring, uh -huh. what are the characteristics of a good mentor? I think active listening, willing to sit and spend time with somebody. I think having the commitment to want to do it, like you've got, you've got to spend time with the mentee. Like you've got to, got to be prepared to commit. Like if it's a formal mentoring setup yeah. and you know, there's different kinds of mentoring. You know, I've been, I've had formal mentors and informal yeah. mentors in, in my career. But if it's a formal mentoring relationship, then yeah, you need, you need to be able to commit to a period of time. Is it three months, six months, a year, whatever? I think to be genuinely interested in being a mentor, frankly, like there's some people that, you know, maybe shouldn't be. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you know, they're not, it's not in their wheelhouse. Yeah. I think being willing to do it, I think being, you know, somebody that is, I think trust is a big thing. So you need, you need to be somebody that can develop yeah. trust and rapport with your, your mentee. And I think that's able to hold their mentee accountable as well. Like it's their career. They need to take ownership of it. You can help them. You can guide them. But ultimately it's their journey. It's, it's them that's yeah. going to drive it. Absolutely right. The ownership of your career is something yeah. that's pretty important, right? Absolutely. No one's going to feed it to you. You got to find it. I like that. That's a good, that's a good wisdom drop of knowledge to, uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You're not approved. Yeah. <laughs> so David, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, Keep welcome. doing what you're doing, yeah, man. Much appreciated. It's so important to get people fired up and into this business and doing good work. So you're doing God's work there. That's thank it. You. Thank you both. Okay. Right. Take care. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex Podcast Interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. I love what David represents. Yeah. 
If you think about your own career, and I think about my own career, I've had amazing mentors. I was so lucky. And the mentors, and you actually said it, you know, sometimes you're going to have mentors and you're not going to like them. Yeah. But what you'll do is, and you may never like them, but you will never forget the value that they brought to your career. And I know, and maybe we've talked about this before, but over my career, there's been six or seven significant moments that were yeah. really uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've had that, that, metrics. That, <laughs> there's no way. I've had the moments when you're just confronted with your own stupidity. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's like, did I really do that? <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, and my God, it's, but you never forget them and always hugely valuable. I think one of the very first ones that I had, it was about humility. And I thought I was a rock star. Uh, well, I was, was I was, uh, I just say I was probably, I had the passion, I had enthusiasm, but I was starting to develop a chip on my shoulder. And Ernie, that was his name, Ernie. Had, so I was a young kid at the time. I was like maybe 18, something like that. And Ernie at the time was, I don't know, probably pushing 65, 70. And for a 70-year-old man, could he pack a punch? Holy yeah. cow, he ripped, he ripped me a whole new ego. <laughs> the level of aggressive stupidity in someone young who's full of themselves is just ridiculous, right? And you do need yep. that, that saucy old mentor to sort you out. That really yep. is a right <laughs> passage that particularly men, boys need, right? Yeah, I think women are a lot more mature and easier to coach. But just yeah. boys are so full of themselves right in their 20s, you know. Oh, no. But what I like about David <laughs> is he's humble. He's doing yeah. great work and he's humble about it and he's passionate about it. And there is a humility there, right, at the end, you know, when he was talking about how he got a note from someone who said, thanks for yeah. what you did for me. You know, that was a surprise to him, not to me, but to him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That was his, like, his teach. I love the Buddhist respect for teachers, right? The teacher is the wise person. You know, you should be seeking teachers and mentors. That whole philosophy around that, the respect for teachers in society, in Buddhist society, I find really interesting. And the fact that yeah. teachers aren't that valued by society here drives me a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I'm totally with you on that. I don't remember who said this. It was probably, you know, a monk or something like that, but something along the lines when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. Yeah. You it's know. that philosophy of like, because that philosophy goes two ways. It goes to the value of teachers, but it also goes to reminding you to seek the teacher, seek mm. the mentor, right? Get over yeah. yourself and find that person who can take you to another level. And uh, I don't know, in the West, we seem to have lost that for some reason. Yeah, I agree. And that's what, you know, when Dave was talking about the qualities of a good mentor. Yeah. And, you know, for those that are listening to this podcast, that Make note of that because those people will can make or break your career. And if you can find the right person who's a good listener, empathetic, firm, the wisdom and the technical skills, there are so many people who are technically competent. Like you'll never, there's no shortage of technically competent people. Where there's a shortage of is people who can be that wise, patient yeah. teacher who also knows that uh, there are some times when you got to pick up the two by four and whack somebody across the side of the head. Yeah. And I've been the recipient of that two by four. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've had that reaming out. <laughs> so uncomfortable. You never forget them, right? <laughs> don't forget. No, you don't. Listen, we should wrap up there because I'm feeling pretty good about teaching and mentoring right now. I'm in a happy yeah. spot. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a good right, spot man. to be in. Awesome. All right, Adam. Thanks, man. Cheers, man. Cheers. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.